This episode is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. Daily Drip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elixir? How about Elm? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is that it only takes 5 minutes a day. Use coupon code GEEKERY to save $5 on your first month and make learning a part of your daily routine with DailyDrip.com. This episode is sponsored by Clubhouse, project management tools for software teams. Built by proud functional programmers, Clubhouse is used by software engineering organizations around the world and is an ideal planning tool for teams that want to see the big picture. Visit clubhouse.io slash geekery to sign up for a free trial and a $50 credit. Clubhouse. Dream. Develop. Deploy. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Polyconf 2016 will be taking place from the 30th of June through the 2nd of July. Confirmed speakers include Douglas Crockford, Distinguished Architect at PayPal and Jason Discoverer, Julia Evans, Machine Learning Expert at Stripe, Guy Bedford, JSPM Creator, and Andreas Rumpf, NIM Language Creator. Tickets are on sale, and listeners to the podcast can email hello at polyconf.com, and they will give you a personal discount. Visit polyconf.com to keep updated, sign up for newsletter updates, and to register. Curion is taking place July 18th and 19th in Rome. Curion is a rare event where academic minds, responsible for concepts and tools now invaluable to everyday software development, like functional programming, or generics in Java, collide with the movers and shakers in industry that are building next-generation systems and developing software engineering practices central to our entire industry. Visit curry-on.org to find out more and to register, and your ticket is good for all the European Conference of Object-Oriented Programming as well. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th through the 9th. It will be comprised of two main blocks with a gap day in between. The full agenda is out, and they will have industry leaders on stage from companies such as Netflix, Microsoft, Spotify, Pusher, Erlang, Twitter, Google, and many more. And make sure to visit fullstackmaster.fullstackfest.com to check out Fullstack's Fest bot that will chat with the community. Visit 2016.fullstackfest.com to find out more and to register. The Erlang User Conference is coming up in Stockholm, Sweden. The conference will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of September, with tutorials on the 7th and training running the 6th through the 16th of September. With keynotes by Fred Herbert and Simon Peyton Jones, a fireside chat with Jane Wallerud and the Erlang co-creators Mike Williams, Joe Armstrong, and Robert Verding, and the rest of the speaker lineup can be found on their website. And all attendees are entitled to participate in the complimentary tutorials on the 7th of September, sponsored by Ericsson and Kista. Early bird tickets are now available, and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKRY10. Visit www.erling-factory.com slash EUC2016 to register and to find out more. Strange Loop is sold out, but a number of surrounding events still have tickets available. Elmconf is on September 15th, 2016, and tickets and information can be found at elmconf.us. RacketCon is on September 18th, 2016, and tickets and information can be found at con.racket-lang.org. And PWLConf 2016 is the first full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 15th. PWLConf will build upon and further the unique experiences that the traditional Papers We Love chapter events provide. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, 
hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets to PWLConf are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. Code Mesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November with tutorials on the 2nd of November. Early bird tickets for Code Mesh are scheduled to be available until the 21st of July. But beware, very early bird tickets sold out amazingly fast, literally in a few hours. The call for talks is still open, but only until the 30th of June. Visit CodeMesh.io to submit your talks, register, and to sign up for email updates to be able to find out more as information becomes available. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us, we have Garrett Smith. Garrett, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi, Proctor, and thanks for having me on. My name is Garrett Smith. I'm in the Chicago area, and recently I've been involved with uh, with a lot of Erlang and conference development, and uh, I guess we'll be talking about some of that today. So I think I really first heard your name, or at least heard your name click when talking to Martin Logan on the podcast about over control of the Chicago Erlang user group and just seeing your stuff go on and I know you put on the Chicago Erlang conference and whatnot so I wanted to get you in a little bit to talk about Erlang and your background and how you got into it and then the community building side because from everything I can see and everything I've understood you all have grown that community up there very well especially for something that is not one of the places that people immediately think of when they think tech center hub. People don't necessarily think Chicago as tech center hub. Not that it's not, but it's just not the thing that comes to mind when it's like, oh, it's Silicon Valley or maybe Boston because you got the government funded stuff or you got London or you got Tokyo or wherever. It's still up in the top, but it's not one of those that spring to mind. So how did you get into so we'll start with how did you get into programming in general, and then what was that transition? What was that transition that actually made it from just going and doing your everyday programming into functional programming? So yeah, I've been programming since I was nine, and got my start with Commodore sixty four and BASIC, and kind of took it from there. Learned primarily in Pascal and C in school and then uh, in the, sort of the workplace. Didn't start in software professionally, but landed there pretty quickly doing some visual basic work. That was kind of your, your typical corporate gig. And then when Java came out, I, I jumped on that and started using it and then did some sort of professional work in that for about 10 years. Then had a stint with Python. And at that point, 
and these were languages that I just happened to be using for various projects. But you know, at a certain point, you get familiar with enough with languages that you can use a variety of things and kind of pick the, the right language slash tool for the job. Got into Erlang in a, a particular engagement. We're building out a platform as a service and building sort of back-end systems. And originally was doing that in Java and Python and ran into some sort of production issues and some sort of the reality of the system set in and ran into some very specific problems that I had to turn elsewhere for solutions and looked closely at Erlang and it seemed to, on paper, be what would fit and then used it and then got hooked. For back-end systems, I was actually user group meeting last night. Um, it's really hard to justify using anything else unless you have a very good reason and understand why. So anytime I build something that is unattended, it runs on a server, the core is Erlang. So you had the exposure to Erlang in the job, or was that just more of you had this problem, you had heard about it, and then the job is what triggered the exposure to Erlang? Yeah, it was the problem that we ran into. It was a monitoring slash, it was a fairly flexible monitoring tool that managed a lot of independent threads of monitoring and event notification, and it was going through an AMQP broker. So it was kind of right in the teeth of some difficult problems if you're running sort of traditional threaded environments. And just the nature of the, the software we were building just pushed on that model enough that it fell over enough that we had to look to something fundamentally different. And it's the kind of thing where it'll work 99% of the time, but you're, what you're building needs to run all the time. It needs to work. You can't have it freeze suddenly six days into a run and then have to restart and lose state. And so it was a bit of a, a tricky architectural problem and we wanted it to, to work well. So that drove my interest in, in Erlang. I had been familiar with Erlang through exposure to CouchDB. So I knew, I knew about it as a language. I had played around with it. But I really never had a motivating problem to go into that. You know, learning a new language is a, always a, a bit of a curve. And so it, you need to push beyond just hobbying. So that was the push. And then once I saw this thing in production, while the edge case drove it, I found the mainstream use of Erlang had a number of key features that makes it really compelling for more pedestrian applications. So as I, as I mentioned, I'll just use it by default. If it's a system, it's running unattended for forever. So you're know, meant to be running constantly in production. It's Erlang. If it's not Erlang, there's a reason, very specific reason for it. So it was the CouchDB that first piqued your interest about Erlang then, and then you just went off and played with it as just a hobby project? Grabbed Couch, and then as a prerequisite, I had to get Erlang, and I hadn't heard of Erlang. And I'm, how could I not have heard of a language that's sort of this feature rich? And, and uh, I went and got Joe Armstrong's first book that was available at the time and, and read through that. And I didn't go much further than playing around with it. You know, it's, it's kind of fun and easy to use the Erlang shell and, and do sort of basic tire kicking applications. And that's the, that's the extent of it. And I just knew in the back of my mind that for a certain set of problems, the message passing concurrency model would work, whereas a, a threaded model with shared memory might work, would hopefully work, may work with a great deal of care. And so I was in that space, and it was sort of working with a great deal of care and then not working. And these are classic problems that people run into. You can power through that, but we didn't have the time to do that. So I, I felt like you know this is a good case to go and, and actually put Erlang to use. 
So actually, I sat down. Uh, Francesco uh, Cesarini was he's always active and, and always helpful. And I got a chance to sit down with him in Chicago. He was visiting. And I just walked through my approach with him, not having any experience with Erling at all. I and mean, he thought that was a good approach. And that gave me the confidence to just put the thing in production. And it worked beautifully and didn't cost a lot of time to build. It was a simple application. The concurrency problem was complex, but the application itself wasn't that big. So with that experience and that success, I felt really good about it. And then I gradually ended up replacing all of the backend components of our platform as a service in Erlang. And I absolutely don't have any, I have no regrets about that move. And the reason I was trying to tease that out was figuring out if you're playing with it and then you put something in production and use it in production the first time from going to these toy, kicking the tires, playing in the sandbox apps to putting something actually in production. And if you're driving that one as well, what that transition of learning was looking like from, okay, this is interesting. Do I get this? And again, I kind of understand that it's concurrency and message passing, but do I understand how to take advantage of that with just some toy apps versus being able to scale it into production? And then things like immutability when you just start first learning about it. So I was wondering, what were some of those things that kind of got you at the different levels and made you think differently? Or did it seem kind of natural and fit your brain in the way you thought? Because I know some people pick up some of these languages like, God, had I learned this first, this would have been great. Because this naturally fits with how I think about the world. Well, I mean, the, if you have the luxury to sit back and do things that fit the way you're, you think about the world, that that's fun and great. This was a particular case where things just weren't working. And, you know, we were you know, trying to release a feature that wasn't working. It was an important feature. It was a feature that would differentiate us from competition. And it, it simply couldn't be put into production. I mean, you'd run it and literally in, in anywhere from two hours to six days, it would freeze. And it's a classic problem with deadlocks. This code base was so complex. And this was an R code base. It was an ecosystem of libraries. Um, and it wouldn't surprise many to hear that the center of that ecosystem is AMQP. It's a very complex protocol. It's very difficult to write for. And for better or for worse, we had picked that as our centerpiece and was trying to build services around it. This is a case of simply hitting a brick wall and had spent quite a bit of time trying to use our existing tool set to fix the problem, to work within the problem, you know, to work within our constraints, which consisted of Python and C++ and Java. And it wasn't for lack of trying. So it was a hard decision to say, let's take a step away from the direction we're going here and try something completely new. That decision is mitigated because it was a narrowly focused application and it was plugging into sort of a distributed environment. So it was one piece. And I think you'll find that this is the way Erlang is often introduced into an, an organization. You'll have a specific problem that's particularly challenging, but it's narrowly defined and you're not betting the whole company or the program, or the, or the team, you don't have to go out and hire a large number of Erlang programmers. One or two programmers can go and create something that's very narrowly focused and get experience with it. And that's what we did. So it was a little bit of a risk, but it wasn't, it wasn't wholesale selling out to a platform strategy. As it turned out, it made sense gradually, and gradually over a course of two years plus, phase out existing services. But this was not a matter of, hey, this is we like this. We're a, an Erlang shop or a Java shop. We're not a shop of any particular type, but it happened to work better. It happened to save us time and, and investment and improve our offering given what we were working with. So that's what drove our, our adoption of Erlang. 
And were there any stumbling blocks either on yours or on your teammates as you started rolling this stuff out about changing that mindset? Because I know myself, when I was learning Erling, uh, the syntax was easy. It was different, but it was still fairly simple enough for me to pick up. The big thing was trying to get a good picture of which parts should be concurrent and paralyzable and separate and different actors versus what parts just become modules and functions and finding that dividing line. So as you got into this, was that something you you had gotten comfortable with in your tire kicking apps or was that some of the stuff that you had to go and rediscover how it works once you actually put it into production? You said you talked to Francisco and he said it seemed like a good direction you were already going. So was that something that you had already discovered and picked up or where was that transition or were there any speed bumps in that and then getting your teammates up and running if they are having to support this too? Yeah. So there's a learning curve with the language and then there's a learning curve with sort of the, the model and your kind of your question kind of gets to the model, the mindset, the architecture, the approach to building software. And I was very fortunate in that at the time, Martin Logan and Eric Merritt were here in Chicago. Martin has since come back. But they were spearheading the uh, the Chicago Erlang user group, and it actually was just sort of in the process of being for, for um, uh, we were moving over to, to meet up and, and kind of growing a little bit, and we kind of all worked together to put on a series of um, you just build the meetup, build the user group, and through my friendship and exposure to them, I learned very quickly. And we'd spent some time in something called Erlang Camp, which is still in motion. I'm not a part of that anymore, but that was I had kicked that off with them early on. So I was very fortunate in being able to, to ask questions of folks who've been using it for you know ten plus years or you know a long time. And I think with that help, it makes things quite a bit easier. That said, I will say because of Erlang's simplicity, so it's a, there's there's not a lot of moving parts there there aren't a lot of options that you have. And as soon as you start to understand a couple of basic things, building applications in Erlang, I think is easy. The concepts are easy. Building things are, is obviously a matter of experimentation and iteration, but Erlang encourages that. It doesn't ask of you a large upfront architectural point of view or design. You can start very small and iterate and not violate design principles. It's an unusually enlightened language. I don't think this is necessarily something that was designed in the language. It just happens to be there. So when you build an Erlang system or application, you tend to focus on very small problems, and then you move on to the next problem and the next problem. It's, it's If you look into the system, um, you know, microservices and the advantages touted there, this is all specifically, you know, you have a small focused separated concern you build that and that's your service. It's isolated. And then you move on to the next one. And these things talk to one another. There's some coordination, but in a good system, there's a lot of independence. All of these features, principles are embodied in, in Erlang and its ecosystem. So as much help as I got, I really don't think there's all that much help that is needed to build systems correctly in this language. It's one of those chasms that's easier to cross with the people. It's not that it's not that you can't cross it, but it just makes that chasm being crossed so much easier when you see the examples of here's what you should do and here's how things are structured versus just reading it in a book without necessarily yeah. getting that feedback of. So when you say this, this is what you mean, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that was back in a time when OTP didn't have a lot of documentation. But really what I'm talking about is just sort of canonical OTP. And for those who are not familiar with with Erlang and what OTP is, think of OTP as a sort of set of best practices that are codified in a library that sits on top of the language itself that provides rudimentary but important skeleton frameworks for building systems. And OTP hasn't changed. um, I don't know how long. It's been surely over 10 years. It's incredibly stable. And Eric Merritt and Martin Logan at the time were, were working on their book, OTP in Action. And so they were, of course, advocates of OTP. But if you look at Erlang, OTP is everywhere within Erlang. So this framework is there. And I think it's kind of just that. And I know you had Francesco and Cesarini and Steve Vanoski on a little while ago. And they were talking again about OTP and sort of the best practices of distributed systems that are buried in that library. And I think if you pick that up and work with it and just kind of go with it, you're not going to make a lot of mistakes. It's very difficult to make mistakes when you're building within that framework. Yeah, and I think the one biggest mistake we had when we were down here and I was on the team that did a little bit of Erlang and I was getting to touch the periphery was being overzealous in what was processes. Processes are cheap, but it was also something that could have just been a straight function call because it was just computation. And it was like, where is the right dividing line? And that was just the chasm to cross. And it sounds like you were lucky that you actually had the Erlang community going, at least to some extent, even if it was at the beginning, while you were making this transition and you weren't just picking it up on your own with... Absolutely, yeah. There's absolutely no substitute for mentorship and, and, and guidance. So if I, mean, I would encourage anybody who's trying to pick this up, many people do successfully pick up Erlang without really plugging into the community. It's not that complicated. It can be done. But if you find you're struggling and you have questions like this, there are the list user groups that are readily available. And um, what I found is the community is incredibly generous with being able to help and support people in their adoption. And did you find as you put this into production and you were one of the drivers of getting at least that first service in, what did you find your team's response to that was after you got this up and running and saying, look, Yes, we know it works 99% of the time, but that still fails one time out of every 100. So that's one second out of every minute, 40 seconds, or if we get 100 requests per minute, that's at least one request per minute that's crashing on us, which people don't think about as 99% is good, right? Well, not at scale. But how did your team find out and kind of adopt this? Was this something that they saw and said, hey, this is cool? I want that behavior for the stuff I'm working on, or was that a little bit of sales process and you had to corral people and show them why it was good? Or what did that look like of introducing it into the company after you had this win for this one small service? Yeah, I mean, I had autonomy, so I was fortunate in that respect. I could sort of drive things. But at the end of the day, if if you're not delivering working software and, and your systems are not functioning, you're in big trouble. So you've got to put your money where your mouth is. And that's unusual. I think that there's a lot of sort of risk aversion in organizations and there's a lot of gravitational pull toward what people are used to. It's very difficult to shift folks who've been writing software for a decade plus and they're comfortable with a particular set of tools and they've seen those tools work. It's difficult to make esoteric arguments about 99% availability, uh, long-running services, maintainability. I think a lot of 
a lot of what Merck makes Erlang successful is with folks who have experience running things in production. And there's a big difference between coding and running, meaning you know, there's a difference between the program that you write and compile into some sort of artifact and then putting that in production and running it. And of course, DevOps is kind of the junction between these two disciplines. Erlang is an incredibly production-friendly system. So if you're, you're a programmer who likes to kind of live close to the wire, you know, in the sense you are responsible for and fixing problems that are in production, tools that make your life easier are great. And so I think that's a dividing line. And there aren't a lot of programmers who are subject to the, the travails of production and understand it takes a certain amount of experience and weathering suffering. You go through you know, time and space and you, you get called at three, 3 in the morning to fix something. And when you've gone through that process, let's say 10 times, it, your brain has changed and, and is rewired and you have a very different way of, of looking at the world. If you haven't gone through that, you think differently. So it doesn't bother me that Erlang isn't as readily adopted. I think it's a matter of finding the right application and giving it an opportunity to demonstrate itself. But there are some cases where it just doesn't make sense culturally and, and programmers are going to be, you know, A, it's a very odd syntactic language, you know, language syntactically. As you sort of alluded to, there's a new model of programming that you've got to get your head around that isn't obvious necessarily. There's a lot of fundamentally it's a functional language most folks are have been cut their teeth on object-oriented imperative style programming there's a lot of things to get over there and so if you don't have a really big problem and a really big pain point pushing you in that direction you're just not going to adopt it and so i found consistently there's a lot of hesitancy in considering erlang for all of these reasons and so it's difficult, I think, to get it into an organization and get it adopted in any any large extent. That's that's historically been its challenge. And you mentioned you had the autonomy to get that first one in. What have you seen, and either yourself directly or as part of hearing stories and hearing people testify in the Chicago user group about when it's actually in production, what does it look like for other people? And what's the aha moment for others if you've already got it in production where they're like, hey, yes, let's move more stuff over if that decides to happen versus just we've got this one thing. We don't touch it. It's cool. It's neat. Maybe people want to work on it and fix it. Other people don't. But what's the thing that once people see it, is that click for them? Yeah, I mean, it is really an operational mode. If the developer or the team is responsible directly for running it, there's a very early term aha. Like this is, I, mean, I can enumerate the features that trigger this aha. They're very specific. They're very technical. They're very real. It's not a glossy sheet of, of marketing features. It's very fundamentally different approaches to building and running, maintaining software. But up the scale where people sort of up the food chain, if you will, for bad, bad uh, model there. You know, as you move away from boots on the ground, folks who are responsible for the metal, for the actual operational environment, you become more, a little bit more indifferent to these, these arguments. And how easily can I find programmers becomes much more important. How can I scale my organization? Can I find Erlang programmers? That's a very risky proposition. To go build a team of, so let's say, 10 Erlang programmers is, is not easy, simply because there aren't a lot of them. There aren't a lot of them because there really isn't a big demand for them. So it's a bit of a vicious negative feedback loop in that respect. So I think the line does unfortunately stop with 
you know, hey, there's this kind of weird app out there. It's critical to our organization, but no one really understands it but this handful of people. No one really wants to touch it. And it's difficult to move up and out from that and get an organization to commit. There are a number of organizations who started with Erlang. And because I think this is the wrong decision, I think it's silly to compromise a technical platform for perceived organizational problems, but it it is happening. So I think you really need Erlang wins where merit and technical differentiation matters and people are willing to, to support that. But unfortunately, in software, it's far more than just the technical in a lot of cases. And so Erlang faces a real uphill challenge in getting adopted in it at any mainstream level. And this all kind of leads into building that community. And one of the other things I want to talk to you about, because whether it's Erlang specifically, as we talk about, or any of these other languages, be it a Haskell or ML or Clojure is starting to pick up steam now, but some of these things that are more niche and have the merits of their own, but it's different. There's not a huge community around it. It's kind of those things of how do you start that community, whether it's the one or two other people at work or finding the one or two other people in your Metroplex or small town or something that does this and then build it up because you've had success piggybacking off of what Eric and Martin started with the Chicago Erlang Group. You took it over and then you helped skyrocket that and was able to get enough people there to help put on a conference repeatedly. So that's one of the things I'm trying to figure out is a lot of us would like to be doing Erlang or whatever language and maybe we can get that in. But again, it's not going to be a sales or we have to figure out what are those things that attracts people to this? How do you start with that community and do more than just the technical merits of someone who has had to have done ops and reach out to the programmers as well. I don't think there's a lot of strategy there. I think you just do it. You know, when we started, Meetup was kind of just coming of age. And for better or for worse, Meetup is the platform. I wish it was a little more affordable for, for organizers, but uh, so be it. Um, they, they do a good job of supporting organizers, so there's value there. So Meetup is a great place to start and just get a group going and meet. And it's a matter of carving out time. It's really a matter of carving out time and just and just doing it. There's really nothing glamorous about it. If you happen to get a big turnout and things take off, that's great. If you don't, that's great. I think in any community development, you've got to be you you have to love it. You have to in your soul love what you're doing and be be willing to do it independent of the outcome. So it's, I wish there was something more glamorous there, but it's really a matter of being disciplined and having folks, some friends and other enthusiasts who can support you in that. I would say probably that's the starting point. Do it, get some folks around to help you because you're not always on your game. Sometimes you forget, I forget. There's folks who help me a lot and just do it. And uh, really that, the journey there is it. The outcome is sort of independent of that. And that was kind of one of those things I was wanting to see was if, you had found that there are any things besides just meet up and do it regularly that helped bring that attention as far as there's that catch 22, right? That you were talking about where people don't want to do Erling because there's no jobs because they don't find anybody who wants to do Erling. And again, applicable to anything, but to say, well, we got three people showing up to this meetup. We've, we've moved to five or six, but how do you essentially go out? Did you do any, marketing done in your community or did everybody just find you up in Chicago that says, Hey, 
this is apparently a hot spot that everybody just happens to be interested in. So they accumulated to you or what was the growth for the Chicago so would, side on your, I would put the conferences in their own category. There's nothing any conference organizer will tell you this, even the most successful. It is an extremely time consuming, difficult process to promote a conference. There are only so many people in immediate access. Any one given channel will only give you so many and you need to go after a lot of different channels. So it's a difficult promotional effort. It just takes a lot of work. Once your conference gets some traction, obviously you've got repeat customers, so to speak, you know, repeat attendees who are familiar with it and it becomes easier. But the starting, you know, to, to start a new event is a function of backbreaking labor. Sorry, I, I was referring to still the user group of building that user group. Yeah, yeah, I would separate the one. So the user group today, I think, Meetup is probably your only channel that you need. It's really, they've built out a good network. And I'm always hesitant to sort of subscribe to something, to a single entity when I feel like it should be a protocol or a platform. Like there should be, I shouldn't have to go to a website, but it is what it is. If you start a meetup, they do a very good job of of, of sort of announcing to the right people about your meetup. And now you've got a a sort of membership. And when you start to repeat your meetings and be consistent about them, you should grow. If you don't grow, then you've got to love what you're doing. You know, if you have a meetup with three people showing up, that wouldn't bother me. I think all the merit resides in the content. All of the value resides in, in the content and taking time to help one person or two people or three people is just as valid as helping 30. It's a different dynamic. But to me, again, it's not, you know, if your eye is toward the result, some number, some level of vibrancy, it'll be frustrating. But if your, your motivation is in diving into something that you're interested in learning, interested in teaching, there's no better investment of time than a user group. So you just need to go down that road. But as far as marketing and promoting a secret to success, I kind of just stick with Meetup at this point. And that makes sense. And the reason I ask is I've done a meetup and I know that we got a couple of other meetups that I've participated in around more of the functional programming languages where it's like, here's three people showing up to the meeting. Maybe we might get a fourth or a fifth. Yeah. And that happens for a year or something. And it's like, okay, so what are we actually going to like? It becomes very ad hoc. Like we're all still going because we enjoy it, but it's also... Is there anything to talk about? Who's working yeah. on something new? Because we're all doing this in our spare time for whatever it is. And Yes. I mean, sometimes you need to power through that and just keep doing it. If you feel frustrated, find something that's interesting. I would take some inspiration from Brian Hunter's work and others down in Nashville with Nash FP. Brian is passionate about reaching out across the languages. And I think that's right. I think that's the, you know, especially in smaller markets where you just don't have, I mean, Chicago is what, number three in the U.S. So just statistically, we're going to find people here. And I think it can service independent Erlang, Clojure, Scala, ML, Haskell, these groups. That said, the functional camp is still pretty small. So, you know, just taking a step to broaden the topic base might be a good step. Different types of meetings also, I think, are worth exploring. So there's the typical presentation style. Somebody comes in with some prepared content. The type I think that's very successful is a workshop. And there's a lot of people, there's a lot of young, sort of new, I shouldn't say young, but new programmers who want help. 
that want to ultimately help to get into the market of you know, programming for a living. And the Ruby and Python communities have been outstanding at attracting these developers, primarily because I think the web frameworks are there, Django and Python and Rails on Ruby. But the numbers there are very big. You might have easily 50 people showing up just to learn how to, for some sort of free tutorial. And networking at that level, it's different. I mean, you're really helping folks who are just starting. But there's no reason that functional can't be a part of that um, at all. And I haven't spent as much time in that area as I'd like to, but I think that would be an area of reaching out to folks who aren't quite so math-oriented and trying to make that case that this so-called alternative way of programming is really suitable for any mainstream programmer, and, and here's our message on that front. And that makes sense. And that was kind of the stuff that I was seeing if – as part of getting that up, you were actually going to some of these other groups and saying, oh, here's a presentation about some of the stuff this gets you. If you're interested, if this intrigues you at all, here's when we meet kind of thing and find out more with a slant towards those groups. And again, we made the transition from Java to Erlang, as you said in your group, because you had Java, Python, and C++. So here's what it looked like. Here's the kinds of problems we found and we put this in. It may or may not be a fit for you, but here's some of the interesting things to think about. And I didn't know if that was part of the growth or if it was just pure raw tech hub that caused the Erlang user group to have such a good turnout. The conference certainly helps. And that, again, is that's independent. Meetup is going to give you a little bit of help there, but not much. That's just brute force and determination to build that. I think in promoting something, I mean, if you, if you have something to say about a functional language, there's no shortage of opportunities to talk about that in other circles. That's another area I think that is underexploited is sort of cross-pollination across groups. Folks are always open to hearing alternatives, and it's a great way to meet other people and meet other communities and get plugged in. Not something I've had as much time to spend on as I'd like, but I think organizing guest speakers from different groups. I'd love to see more of that. And that's a way I think of getting the so-called message out. It's just fun too. And so you managed to grow big enough up there that you've also managed to start the conference, which you alluded to a couple of times. So I believe Martin mentioned that in his episode, that kind of at the end of his tenure, before he handed the reins over to you, that he said, okay, we're going to start this Erlang camp. And then it got kind of transformed and built on top of, of not just Erlang Camp, but we're going to put on a conference as well after that success of the Erlang Camp. So, Erlang Camp was really Eric and Martin, Tristan and Jordan. They took that off and drove that. And they travel and go to different cities. Um, I was part of the first two. But the Erlang Conference really stemmed out of ESL and the, the Erlang Factory Lights. Erlang Solution sponsors the San Francisco Factory, which is a, a significant conference. In Erlang, and then the Erlang User Conference, which is in Stockholm, also significant. But then also they help to support probably a dozen regional, what they call Erlang factory lights. So that's what the original Chicago Erlang was. I don't like the word light, so I just rebranded it as Chicago Erlang. So it's Chicago Erlang, but it's in the spirit of, of any of the ESL factories, and they help us to organize that. It's kind of weird to have Erlang with all these little schisms, but it's really just individuals doing things that they love. But that didn't have a whole lot to do with the meetup either. I mean, there are people come from all over the place to that conference. And I would say of the meetup attendees, a small fraction make up the total conference attendance. So that sort of is independent of that. I would say that organizing conferences 
is a fundamentally different beast than organizing a meetup. Maybe that's controversial, but I find that the work involved is, is quite a bit heavier on the conference side. And what I was kind of more going for was my understanding was that it was you and a couple of other people from that user group up there that helped push the conference together. And I was kind of driving at that and then just the general community building of getting the word out and being an evangelist for Erling, both from the user group side and then also deciding to take it a step further and go and say, okay, not only do we do the user group, there's a small core of us up here who's kind of involved in both, but we're also going to step up and try and put on a conference here and kind of the impetus behind that decision of going, you know what, a user group is not enough. Let's put on a full conference and what that difference looks like because they are two different beasts. I would say the conference did not come out of the, the user group, but much more from a collaboration with Erlang Solutions. And Francesco kind of has a bit of, a, I say this with great affection, he has a bit of an addiction to conferences. And I share that. I love them. And even though there are a lot of work, they're just gratifying across the board. That's what motivated me to do City Code. City Code and, and the Erlang conferences are, are probably more closely related, I'd say, than the user group. It isn't with an eye toward community as much as it is an eye toward conference experiences, simply because in a conference, you've got people who come in from out of town. So the, the user group is really the day in and day out steady stream, and that ebbs and flows based on people's interest. Conferences are something that you can kind of promote and I think help succeed with a lot of work and promotion. So that's kind of where that came from. Okay. I was thinking about the, there's a small community and then the larger community, but kind of the anything to help spread the word and raise awareness of, in this case, Erlang, of saying, look, there are people out here, we are spread out, but this gives us a place, whether or not it's a local user group or a meeting at a conference to get together and share our experiences, share our learnings and come together and build that community and get in touch and say, here's what we've found and here's what we learned. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you've been to conferences. So you know, my view on conference is that it's a respite, it's a retreat and it's invigorating and inspiring and relaxing. And it, it's something that you go to, to allow yourself to change in a way that you just, you don't have an opportunity in sort of normal learning circles and it's an opportunity to create an experience for people. And it's an incredibly creative process, both in terms of organizing the event, but really more in terms of allowing serendipity to, you know, between, from speakers to content to conversations in hallways to time and dinner or, or coffee, a beer, whatever. There's so much exchange. It's almost like, a, you know, the time of guilds where people would co-locate and be able to exchange ideas and show people what they're working on. And so we don't have guilds. We don't have co-location today because we're global. But conferences allow us to have a bit of that experience. And so it's community development, but it's community development globally. And really, from my point of view, it's about promoting and, and enabling formative experiences for individuals. It's almost less community than more the vision is toward individuals to, to help them experience something completely different. That's an interesting perspective because it's not one that I've thought about directly as the benefit of a conference. When you hear about, hey, we're going to have this Ruby conference or this Java conference or this Erlang conference or 
whatever conference it might be, it's usually centered around that focus without saying we're having this conference. Sure, it's on this, but the focus is on everybody showing up and making sure that everybody comes and is fulfilled and gets the most out of it that they can instead of just having it be, here's a place to go learn something. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. There are different conferences out there. And because I'm not getting really paid, I don't do it professionally. I get to do whatever I want to. So I don't want to do a conference that's like another conference. I'd like to experiment and try something different. And so that point of view that I just went through is kind of where I've come about. I want, you know, there's a lot of time. You've got to get get on a plane and travel. And how many times have we been to a conference where we had profound aha moment and you can't organize or plan that? It is it's serendipity. But I think you can create an environment that encourages those moments, whether it be something a speaker said, it could be something after speaking one on one with a speaker. Oftentimes, it's incredibly random conversations that are the most most profound and impacting. But if you're going to have a conference, I think thinking about ways to generate those opportunities is important. And that's a different model, I think, than the traditional model, which is here's our topic. Speakers come in. I, you know, I, don't, I actually don't know. I think that's probably true of a lot of organizers. They, they want people to, to walk away from that experience um, changed in some way regardless of the focus or how it's put together. I think that's probably true of most organizers. So do you have any tips or advice for someone who's got that idea that maybe one day I can start a conference and provide that? Are there any, is this one of those things that you hear people about, Hey, I want to write a book, but until you actually start writing a book, you realize you don't really want to write a book. You want to have written a book. Is there any kind of words of wisdom or advice that you would give to someone who might have the idea of saying, could I start a conference? Maybe I should start at 50 people or what kind of stuff if someone gets that idea and has that at the back of their head about feasibility or work that goes into a conference that you could give them? Yeah, probably with anything you haven't done before, there's a tendency to underestimate the work. And part of the learning experience is in appreciating how much of a mistake that you made and how terrified you are and going and pushing through that. You know, all that is motivational and it's part of the process. So I would never discourage anyone from trying something ignorantly. Try it and experiment with it and fail, so-called fail. But that's, of course, a, a ridiculous. I mean, if you're passionate about something and you're determined, you're going to push through these things. It's, it's not rocket science. It's event organization. Much better to try something, suffer a little bit, and learn from it than to sit back and be afraid that it's going to be too much work. I would say, though, that if you're focused on a particular outcome, you're more likely to be disappointed. I really believe that you should be driven by what you love and what you're passionate about. And you can be passionate about creating great experiences by creating a single 90-minute event on a Wednesday night. It doesn't have to be a one-day or two-day conference. So I would start there and see how it feels. And if you're really motivated after that, then do more of those. And then at some point, do a half-day conference or a, a Saturday conference. And 50 people is a great target. And don't sweat the outcome. That's just, <laughs> it's not worth it. Unless you want to become a professional conference organizer. But I don't know a single person out there who started a conference because they, they thought this is a great way to make a living. And I wasn't thinking about the making a living from it, but I've heard a number of people both on the podcast and just hearing around of 
There doesn't seem to be a real community here, or I would have to travel and do whatever. So, you know, it'd be cool is eventually put on a conference where everybody would come to me because they want to come this way instead of me having to travel. And so I've heard some people kind of like, it'd be nice to see more stuff in the U.S. around a given language or because there's a strong, in the same way that there's a strong community of Erlang in the European countries that it's a little weaker in the U.S., across the board so could you have a couple of conferences regional for erlang or haskell or f sharp because to go across the sea or whatever depending on wherever you are what does it take to put on something here kind of thing yeah i like the term micro conference i like the idea of having a conference that isn't doesn't have that much ceremony that if you get 50 people to show up that's great if you get 20 people to show up that's great it's a micro conference so it's designed to be small and the difficulty really is, I mean, so for any given conference, you're going to ask somebody to usually travel and then do something for a day. You know, that's a significant commitment of time and energy. And you've got to go and get that message out to, for any one person that comes, maybe you've tried to get that message out to 100. So, you know, trying to reach, you know, if it's a 50, you know, an audience of 500 or, or even more, you know, trying to re- get that message out to an audience of 1,000. This is basic marketing. It's difficult and takes a lot of energy. There are, there's no push-button channel to promote a conference the way there is Meetup. Meetup is almost instantaneously promoted. There is no such outlet for conferences. So that's the real kind of catch. So if your market isn't big enough, and it's going to be hard to get people, I think, to come to a, a town. And I mean, I, I don't know. I, would, I wouldn't set my aspirations on conference. I would focus on workshops within sort of the user group banner there. Doing a conference should be, I think, there's enough problems as it is. You should make your make your life easier and, and try to promote it within a large market. You know, even if you have to go to New York or Chicago or San Francisco, um, you'll be better off, I think, than trying to get folks to come into a smaller regional area. And all that sounds like a great rundown and vision of some of the stuff that you've seen around the conferences compared to the user groups, just because you've seen both sides of that. Yeah, they're different. I'd say they're they're different. And for someone who's done both, being able to highlight those differences, because I don't picture they're the same, but it's hard to see how they're different when you look at one versus the other, other than just a order of scale and what that implies. Yeah. Even if it's a free conference, you're still asking a lot for somebody. You've seen it. You know, you can have a free event that's in the middle of a week, right after work. People can walk down the street and go to it. Super easy, super valuable, great content. Everyone should go to it and you'll get five people showing up. How much more difficult is it than to get 50 people? And again, this is all micro scale. These are very small conferences in the scope of things. But even 50 people to come out for, let's say, a Saturday. If you're talking about a Friday, you're asking people to take a day off of work. These are significant commitments. So the bar there is quite high. A half day workshop on a Saturday is much more approachable. And if 10 people show up, it still could be very successful. There, the focus is on content and, you know, who is saying what, the quality of the exchange. And you can walk away with a great sense of accomplishment, even with small numbers. If you're labeling at a conference and 10 people show up, you're going to kind of feel disappointed. And I, I think that's misplaced. I don't think you have to have a label there. I think it's, it's easier to, to get these things cooking and going under the banner of a user group. So if, if somebody's in that category, I would certainly start there and just start to do events and don't worry about calling them conferences. 
And that's a great piece of advice and a way to approach it as well and figure out, like most things, start with the small scale and make sure you can even do the small scale before you try and balloon up to a large scale. Mm -hmm. So we're getting close to our time. We've kind of talked a little bit around a bunch of stuff, but is there anything that we had talked about that you want to dig deeper on? Because I know you've gone and done a lot of presentations as part of your love for conferences and going to conferences. Is there anything that we haven't missed or haven't or that we've touched on or haven't dived deep enough into that you think we should talk about for a little bit before we move on towards the end? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I would like to see – I'm not a big believer in camps, you know, religious camps. The functional banner is kind of out there as a nice – category to rally a number of different language groups. And there is certainly a model of thinking that goes on in functional languages. But it's it's strange, though, when you look at the languages that are commonly associated with functional, a lot of them aren't functional, or they're somewhat functional. I mean, I've heard JavaScript lumped into the category as a functional language, and there are books out there that are presenting it as a functional language. So you can debate that, and I certainly would. Nonetheless, it shows that the banner of functional programming is rather wide, which is great. I would like to see more concerted effort to put the case out there that functional programming is really, there's a model there that is very different from imperative. And it might be difficult to narrow down what that is given all of the different language features and how do you divide one from another. But I think it could be done. And really go out and try to get people thinking about this model as the preferred model for teaching programming. I feel frustrated because I see sort of the object-oriented and imperative styles of programming accepted as the de facto standards of teaching programming. So if you're going to learn programming, here's where you start. I think that's wrong. I think it's it's a terrible mistake, and you know, not for some sort of functional religious category, but for programmers, for new programmers. And I listened to the podcast with Francesco and, and Steve before this, and Francesco mentioned that one of the challenges in adopting Erlang isn't so much adopting Erlang, but it's unlearning a lot of the things that have been taught and ingrained with this traditional starting point of programming. And unfortunately for a lot of programmers, myself included, this traditional starting point may have lasted 10 to 15 years. I mean, so there's a lot of ingrained patterns that could be undone. So I don't know how that's done. I don't know if that's a matter of interfacing with schools. And there are people who have thought more about this problem than I have. But sort of as a host of a functional topic blog, I'm sure you run into this all the time. I would like to see, I don't have the time right now to focus on this, but I want to, sort of an evangelical initiative to help new programmers start with functional, not view it as a point of graduation. Now I'm going to go from this form now to the, the hard stuff, but you start there and hopefully you never have to leave because I don't think you necessarily need to unless you need to learn C. But so I don't know if you want, you know, what thoughts you have on that. Maybe this is more of a question for you, but did you see folks who are knocking on that door and talking about that and, and interested in getting out and after learners, folks who are just starting to learn how to program and, and formulate sort of function forward learning material for them? I've seen a little bit on the periphery and I managed to have Matthias Felison on and he was talking about some of their stuff that they're doing with things around racket for teaching education in schools. And then I know Simon Peyton Jones and a couple of others have the computing at school where they're actually trying to do computer science 
without actually using computers and programming, but just teaching the concepts. But I don't know that I've seen a whole lot other than things like that and maybe Sonic Pi, where there's some closure stuff, aside from just some of the boot camps and the bridges that are starting to come up with things like Closure Bridge and some of the other functional language bridges. But it seems something that I keep asking about for people who've actually had that experience to try and at least make that known. And that actually reminds me of one of the presentations you had was you with your kids. And I believe it's Java versus Erlang that you're trying to get him exposed to because he's doing Minecraft and trying to say, here's the difference in the thinking. And like, what are some of the things that are attractive either way? Yeah. I'm definitely trying to trying to expose without, you know, maybe actually now that you mentioned that particular talk, the premise of the talk was that, well, it was Scratch in that particular case, but the main gist of that talk was related to sort of Scratch and then an experiment with Erlang. But then my realization that the models have less to do, the particular languages have less to do with the learning experiences. So maybe that mitigates my enthusiasm for pushing a particular direction. But I guess I would say that it'd be nice to see some alternatives. We have Dev Bootcamp here in Chicago, and, and it's a fantastic experience for, for people. They're coming out with Rails experience, and I guess that's that's good. It's a starting point. I think Elixir, you know, within the Erlang community has a lot to say about this community, uh, learners. And yeah, anyway, I, you know, folks listening to this who are interested in that, um, you know, send me a note. And I'm not sure what's out there or what could be done, but it's certainly a, a point of interest of mine and passion of mine. And... I was going to ask for a call to action. Is that the call to action that you want, or is there a different call to action that you would like to add on to that as well? Oh, that's a great call to action. Yeah. Yeah, what is that call to action? I guess the way I would summarize it is I feel a little envious of, I'll name them, Ruby on Rails, as somehow being so attractive that everyone is learning on that. And I guess that's certainly not bad. It gives people a starting point. I mean, I learned in BASIC and Pascal, and I'm not using those, so it's, it, there's no harm in that. But I would love to see efforts going into uh, creating frameworks. I know the Elixir community is doing this, which is which is phenomenal. So I feel like that's going to be a part of my future in some way when I have a little more free time to go work on material that would be um, useful in, in those teaching contexts. So if anyone's interested in that topic, send me or uh, Proctor a note, and maybe we can cook something up in the near future. And it sounds like, if nothing else, if you aren't going to start it, but you know that it's there, help raise the visibility that it does exist and is out there. And as Garrett said, shoot me and I'll be happy to help spread the word. Tell Garrett and I'm sure he'll be happy to spread the word with the stuff that he does. And so whether you're going to take that as a call to action to start it or you know about it and someone's already doing it, raise that up so we can see and we can share and spread that knowledge that it's actually happening. Yep. That sounds great. So we mentioned a couple of your conferences. So you have some future upcoming appearances by means of city code and Chicago Erlang. Are there any other upcoming appearances that you have? Is there anything else that you want to just give people a heads up about those specifically or when to look for stuff? The Erlang User Conference in September in Stockholm is going to be great. I'm helping with that and really, really excited about the lineup there. And I think the conferences at Erlang Solutions helps the sponsor. I mean, they're very good about working broadly, but they, they really are a driving force uh, 
for community development. It's going to be a great conference. City Code is not yet scheduled, but we're going to have another City Code. City Code is my pure expression of this idea of inspiring people. And last year kind of was an evolved theme around a throwback topics. And I'm not exactly sure what we'll do this year, but I feel like just topics that are off the beaten trail to, are, are presented by brilliant people are compelling. So we want to keep that up. And so I'm excited about that. That will be in Chicago again, and it will be in the uh, September, October timeframe. CityCode.io is the site there, and, and uh, we'll have some updates by the time this episode airs. And I believe or last time that was around the Chicago Erling Conference as well. Is there plans for a Chicago Erling Conference coming up as well? So a lot of that had to do with the fact that spe- there were overlapping speakers. Very challenging to put on two conferences back to back like that. So I might not do that again, but um, we'll have a Chicago Erling as well. That is yet to be scheduled. And when those happen, reach out to me and I'll make sure to get those included in the announcements as well. So people can keep listening in future episodes and we'll get updated when more details become available. Sounds great. So aside from the conference, are there any other projects that you're involved with or any other recommendations that you want people to know about while we have you here and you have the audiences here? There's just so many things going on. I would just encourage people to, if you're even slightly motivated, go take steps and commit yourself, even though you'll regret it later, either in organizing something, helping people learn, go find a group that you can help teach people. If you're slightly inclined, do it. You'll regret your volunteering later, but power through that. And that's how we get communities built and really make that effort is transformative, you know, worldwide. And it's so much fun, so gratifying. So go out and do that. And then where can people find you and follow along with what's going on with you individually? And we will get the links to City Code in the show notes so people can keep updated with that and go check that. But where can people find you and whatever else is going on with you? I'll have to contact my publicist. Now, I don't really have a a particular outlet other than Twitter. So it's G-A-R-1-T on Twitter. But you'll regret that. So... Yeah, I don't really have a channel for broadcasting my stuff, but Twitter's fun. Twitter's fun if you can put up with me. And I'll get that out of the show notes for anybody who wants to attempt. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Garrett, for taking your time to join me today. It was informative, and you'd been on my radar, at least from the Erling community side, and it was interesting to see and get a chance to talk with you both about your Erling experience and your experience in being involved at the community at the various levels of the small local community of Chicago and what that's like and some of the stuff that we can take and learn from doing the experiences around conferences and bringing people together to share those experiences and impact with one another. I appreciate the opportunity, Proctor. Um, Those are all important and I think uh, central to what we do as programmers is about our creative work and helping others to benefit and participate and and also become creative in that endeavor. So I appreciate the opportunity to be on your uh, program. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.